The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My argument would be that Jimmy Carter was too much of a Christian and not enough of a Christian nationalist for the religious right and Jerry Falwell. And so in a way that completely foreshadows this group voting for Donald Trump in 1516, we have Jimmy Carter, this man who never leaves the house without his Bible, teaches Sunday school and uh, is a dyed-in-the-wool Southern Baptist who loses the vote of white Catholics and white evangelicals to a divorced Hollywood actor who uh, really only discovered religion late in life and was wishy-washy on abortion and uh, didn't have a great relationship with his kids. It totally, totally foreshadows what happened with the rise of Trump. I'm Catherine Pompilio, associate editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare podcast, December 7th, 2023. Watching the footage of the attack on the U.S. Capitol on the morning of January 6, 2021, Bradley Onishi thought to himself, if I hadn't left evangelicalism, would I have been there? In his book entitled Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next, Onishi offers a sobering historical account of the origins and development of white Christian nationalism in the United States and its offshoots. From the unique perspective of a former insider, Onishi explains how the decades-long campaign of white Christian nationalism in the United States culminated in the January 6th attack. I sat down with Onishi to discuss his personal experience as a former white Christian nationalist and how it informed his writing of the book. We also discuss culture wars and the myth of the Christian nation, the elections of Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, January 6th rioters and religious symbols at the riot, how Donald Trump fits into all of this, and more. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 7th, 2023, Preparing for War with Bradley Onishi. So we're here to talk about your book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. To get us situated, give us your elevator pitch for this book. What is it about? Sure. The elevator pitch is that what happened on January 6th was in many ways, I think, shocking and surely an aberration in American history. But if one studies uh, the last half century or so of uh, white Christian nationalism, uh, what happened on January 6th becomes less surprising, even if it will always be uh, shocking. And so I wanted to demonstrate uh, how we got to this point. And I wanted to use my own story to do that. Uh, I was a, a full participant in the in the movement, somebody who was in uh, a minister in a white Christian nationalist church. And so my insider perspective, coupled with uh, this long history, I thought would provide a unique view on this whole phenomenon. 
Yeah. So you mentioned you you write this book from the from the unique perspective of a former white Christian nationalist. Tell me about you know your identity, your former identity, and how it's changed from from then to now. I grew up in a pretty non religious household. I'm biracial. My father's Japanese American from born and raised on Maui. My mom's a white woman from the South. And when I was 14, I got invited to a, a mega church in town uh, in Southern California where I grew up. And I thought it would be a, a place to go. I actually got invited by a girlfriend in eighth grade. I thought, all right, I'm going to go hang out with my girlfriend. This is great. Junior high, <laughs> you don't get to do this very often on a Wednesday night. <laughs> and instead of you know, sort of finding a fun activity to do on a weeknight, I became thoroughly entrenched in the church. The church instantly answered every existential question I'd ever had about the meaning of life, about what happens after you die, about any important issue that my little developing teenage brain had. In addition, it provided automatic community. I was welcomed into this this youth group with like 100 kids, and we'd go to the beach, and we'd go to summer camp, and we'd have all kinds of events. And it was like, wow, I found a second home. And by the time I was 18, I was in ministry. By the time I was 20, I was a full-time minister, and I was actually married to my high school sweetheart. And uh, as you can imagine, just fully saturated by faith, by church, this was my entire life. And that changed in my early 20s, but that 10 or 11-year span uh, really shaped my entire teenage years and, and young adulthood. And so when I write the book, I'm writing from that perspective. Yeah. How can you talk a little bit more about how it informed your writing of this book and how you chose to include what specific memories and experiences? Yeah. So I think what I wanted to convey were uh, the explicit and implicit ways that a church like the one I was involved in articulates and and contours Christian nationalism in its congregants and its participants. I was not at an overtly political church. It was not the kind of church that was. Uh, hosting political rallies or anything like that. And yet, nonetheless, uh, as I've examined all of those memories from those years, I realized that the Christianity I converted to was as much about the gospel of Christ as it was about a myth of the American nation. That the Christian uh, symbols and the American flag always went together in our worship sanctuary. That the idea of being a good Christian was also always about being a quote unquote good American. And there was a lot to process there because, again, I'm uh, a multiracial person. Uh, there was a, a lot of having to fit my my Asian American identity into a place where uh, it was not always uh, uh, welcome in in many cases. And so, all of those experiences, all of those memories, uh, really gave me a kind of ability to reflect on how race, uh, nationalism, politics. Uh, reproductive rights, gender, sexuality, all play into a big history uh, that leads us to a, the, the moment we're in right now. And what, what makes someone a white Christian nationalist? Yeah, so this is, this is a really important question. For me, to be a Christian nationalist is to simply be somebody who wants Christians to be privileged in the United States. So if we imagine uh, a table where uh, different folks from the country are sitting down, atheists, Jews, Muslims, folks from various ethnic and racial backgrounds, people who are immigrants, people who are from the Midwest and the South. If you sit down at that table and you say, you know, hey, everybody, good to meet you. Glad to be here. I'm a Christian. And so I just like to begin this discussion about what makes America by saying I should be privileged here. And if I'm not, I'm going to take that as persecution. I'm going to take that as you attacking me and my faith. 
Christian nationalism, in essence, is simply the idea that Christians should somehow be privileged economically, culturally, or politically. Now, that takes many forms. That could take a form that is uh, somewhat under the radar, or what some might call benign, or at least not frightening. It might be a, a little old lady in church who says, I'm really glad we have in God we trust on our money, and one nation under God in the pledge. And, you know, I'm just I'm just not going to vote for somebody unless they're a Christian. Well, you can hear that in churches all over this country. I don't think that's helpful, but it's also not the same as somebody who says something like this. Christians founded the country, and unless we are willing to take it back for God, the country will go down the drain and be in a perpetual catastrophe until it no longer exists. Therefore, our mission is to take America back for God by any means possible, politically, economically, culturally, and so on. And if we have to scrap democracy in the process, we will do that. Those are two ends of the Christian nationalist spectrum, but they're both saying Christians should be privileged in the country in some way. Now, if we add in white, my argument is we really arrive at a, a, a whole different strand of Christian nationalism in the United States, one that has unfo unfortunately played an outsized role in our politics and culture uh, since the country's founding, but surely since the 1960s. White Christian nationalists couple this idea of Christian privilege with the idea that to be a real American uh, is not to be somebody who is necessarily an immigrant or a person of color or somebody who speaks with an accent. Uh, it's somebody who uh, embodies the image of the American as a white Christian, church-going, Bible-believing, American flag-flying person as the standard default person of the country. It's not that everyone else can't be here. It's that they need to realize that they are, in some sense, secondary, that they have a secondary role. If you want to be Barack Obama and be a mixed-race Black man with a Black family, and be the head of the executive branch, that's just not going to work. Because it's not that you need to leave. It's just that you have really overstepped your role in terms of how this country is supposed to work. So we're going to do everything we can when Barack Obama is president to just rail against everything he says, everything he proposes, and so on. One last thing here is that if we look at the data, if we look at the sociological data, what it shows us is that white Christian nationalists view the country as in decline since the 1960s. That by the numbers, what they say is that since the 1960s, the country has lost its way. And that is because the social order has been disrupted. Well, for my money, that's very informative because in the 1960s, we of course had the Civil Rights Movement, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, sweeping immigration reform. We had large-scale women's liberation movements, the publication of the Feminine Mystique, we had the Loving case in 1967 that protected all uh, interracial marriage in all 50 states. We had Stonewall. I mean, I could go on about the 1960s forever. When somebody tells me that the 60s are the time when the country uh, lost its way because the social order got disrupted, what I think they're telling me is, hey, I'm a white Christian at the table, and I no longer get to be privileged and in charge at this table. It seems like the people of color, the immigrants, the queer folks, they all want their voice and their rights too. Yeah, where'd my country go? Seems like this place has really gone down the drain. And so to me, white Christian nationalism, is, is, uh, it's a cultural identity. It's a his set of historical contours, but it's also a myth of the American nation 
that uh, views it as in, in decline and in need of saving very quickly. Hmm. Yeah, it's like that. this type of person is the default American person. And any type of person that veers off that specific path is a direct threat to the default type of person. So in discussions and in the book about, you know, Christian nationalist culture, white Christian nationalist culture, I hear the term family values a lot. And also now I hear the term family values a lot. We always have to protect, you know, American family values. What are white Christian nationalist family values and how are they an attempt to purify American culture? Yeah. So if we go back to what I just said about the 1960s, uh, for white Christian nationalists, this is the time when uh, things really get disrupted. The social order is no longer how it should be. How do you convey that without going into the territory of outright racism or outright xenophobia or anything else that might not be allowed on the main stage in the United States? Well, you start talking about family values because family values is a great way to say this. Hey, um, the country used to be great when there were families that were a mom and a dad, a man and a wife, a couple of kids, a man who was in charge and the head of the household, a woman who recognized his authority, and children who saw their dad as God's voice in their household. And you know, those families, those nuclear families, those heterosexual Christian families, yes, those white Christian families, they were the bedrock of the nation. And they formed the smallest units of what was the great American order. And that was then built out into churches and cities, and then eventually the nation. And therefore, if we could get back to family values, if we could get back to good old traditional family values, we might get our country back. Well, if we decode that, what they're saying is, hey, if we could get back to a place where the only accepted form of family were heterosexual couples who are interested in producing children, heterosexual couples with no hint of queerness, no hint of any kind of diversion from this kind of standard idea of love, of relationship, of marriage. If we could get back to that, if we could stop really talking about, I don't know, gay marriage, if we could stop talking about uh, people having families that don't involve marriage, if we could stop talking about mothers raising kids on their own because they want to, blended families, anything of that kind of genre, then we'd have the real America back. So here's what I'm driving at. Family value sounds benign. When someone from Moms for Liberty or someone from uh, you know, a concerned parent at a PTA meeting says, I'm just worried about family values, it sounds like, yeah, you're just a parent concerned about your kid or you're just somebody who wants a safe community to live in. What I hear is a code word that says, yeah, family values means I don't want all the changes that have happened in American society over the last half century around me anymore. I don't want gay people to be able to get married. I don't want my kids to go to school with families with that have two moms. I don't want to hear an accent when I talk to the other parents at the PTA meeting. I don't want to have to deal with immigrants and their food and their way of life in my in my space. I don't want to have to realize that, yes, there are people who have different holidays than me and recognize those when we uh, meet each other in town or uh, at the after school event. I just want family values. Well, to me, that's a code word and it borders these days on a dog whistle. Mm. 
Yeah. So I want to I want to dive into the historical examples that you you use to tell this story. You write a lot about how you grew up in in Southern California. Tell me about that. Why is this region in particular so important to the rise of the new religious right? And while we're here, what is the new religious right? Yeah. So part of the the reason I wanted to write the book was to really uh, have a chance to dig into my home region, which is Southern California and more specifically Orange County, California. This is a part of the country that a lot of people don't automatically associate with conservative Christianity. Uh, I think people think of California sometimes as just this monolith of like, you know, progressive politics and, uh, you know, like we all grow up reading Marx in kindergarten or something. Um, and uh, any, anybody who knows about California knows that's just not true. And where I grew up specifically is really a Bible belt. Um, Orange County uh, is a place that uh, when I was growing up, there was overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly Christian. And there's a reason for that. And, and I think it's really actually worth going into that. And that's part of what I did with the book. In the 1950s and 60s, there was a large-scale migration of white Southerners and white Midwesterners to Southern California. And it is because after World War II, the defense industry was centered in Southern California, including Orange County. And so if you are a family like my mother's who were in West Tennessee and the Boot Hill, Missouri, in 1958, there's a chance that your dad got a really well-paying job in a place like Orange County, California, that had perfect weather, 15 minutes from the beach, uh, no winter, and a surprisingly really affordable housing. So a lot of people, like my mom, got in their Volkswagens and drove across the country to start a new life in Southern California. By the 70s, there were more Southerners in California than there were in any state in the South. Uh, you have about 6 million over the course of those decades who actually make their way to the Golden State. What's the point? The point is, if you think about that history, it means that the Orange County I grew up in was really shaped by white Christians who had left their, their hometowns, and they were not transplants. They were not expats. They were not like, hey, let's adjust to our surroundings and really get used to what it means to be a Californian. Their mindset was, there's so many of us that we're going to be implants. We're going to bring the America we left to California. And in fact, we're going to create it without any interference of history, any interference of uh, uh, of uh, political factors getting in the way. So Orange County, as many people will remember, became the epicenter of uh, conservatism in the United States in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, I will, you know, a lot of folks don't need reminding, but this is the region that really made Barry Goldwater the candidate for president in 1964. This is the region that raised Ronald Reagan as a political force. This is the region that birthed Richard Nixon. My hometown is Richard Nixon's hometown. My church was Richard Nixon's church. This is the region that named its airport after John Wayne. So this is a place where white Christian conservatism grows, and it grows in a way uh, that is unfettered by large-scale Black communities, as in the South, that is not held back by the presence of generations-long ethnic communities, as in some uh, places in uh, the Midwest. There was no Jewish synagogues or other minority religious communities that were tempering the white Christian nationalism in this place. So for me, I wanted people to see that if you pay attention to Southern California, you might actually see 
how we got to January 6th in some surprising way, that the birth of white Christian nationalism there is actually a precursor to the momentum that white Christian nationalism gains all over the country later in the century and into the 21st century. And so that story was one that I I hadn't seen told very often, and I wanted to make sure people got it. When it comes to the new religious right, my argument here is that in the 1960s, there was a group of political operatives who wanted to build a new brand of conservatism in the United States. They were picking up on certain currents that were already at play, but they learned from Barry Goldwater's campaign in 1964 that the mindset should be extremism in the name of taking the country back. They did not want compromise or negotiation. They did not want to dialogue or debate. They wanted to conquer. And so Barry Goldwater lost in a landslide to Lyndon B. Johnson in in 1964. But the foot soldiers of that campaign never forgot the lessons that they learned while, while working for him. Paul Weyrich, Dana Rohrabacher, so many others went on to shape politics over the next decades. Paul Weyrich is a particularly important example. He founds the Heritage Foundation. He's a co-founder of the, the Council for National Policy. He goes on to form ALEC. I mean, we could talk for the next 10 hours about Paul Weyrich's influence on, uh, on the American right in the latter half of the 20th century. But Weyrich is somebody who's, who's thinking we need to overturn the social order because it has to be returned to what God wants and what America is supposed to be. Well, he does that by linking up with powerful Christian leaders. So he realizes that if he garners the support and audience of Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, that he can make inroads in places in America that can become the bedrock of what he thinks should be this new conservatism. So the new right of Paul Weyrich and the religious right of someone like Jerry Falwell combine forces. And this is what sets in motion uh, so much of the history that we link to Ronald Reagan's uh, election as president or support for George W. Bush, the hardcore opposition to reproductive rights uh, that has uh, taken place in the Republican Party over the last decades, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Tell me about Jerry Falwell and other white evangelical ministers. You know, you mentioned this, but what made them get involved in politics? Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a whole story in itself. And I think, you know, Jerry Falwell is a really interesting example, even if he's one that's talked about a lot. Uh, Jerry Falwell in the 60s is somebody who's telling his congregations that uh, Christians and ministers especially should not be involved in politics. And he he had a famous sermon in, in the mid-1960s where he railed against Martin Luther King Jr., basically saying that I'm not sure why he, a supposed Christian minister, is out there marching. And the idea was is that you know Christians should be about saving souls and uh, focusing on on the kingdom of God. Well, that all changes over the next decade. And Falwell basically says that the role of the the minister is to uh, help save souls and to help get people out to vote. And the argument I would make is that Falwell and many like him uh, in his uh, religious right moral majority camp started to get involved in politics because they saw the social order changing in a way that would no longer privilege them. Uh, One of the main reasons, one of the main forces behind their political involvement in the late 60s and early 70s was the desegregation of schools. Falwell and many others ran segregation academies at their churches, meaning they had whites-only private schools. These schools functioned to prevent white kids from having to go to public schools with black children. 
eventually the government and the IRS said, look, if you keep doing this, we're going to take away your tax-exempt status. Well, instead of repenting from the sin of segregation and racism, Falwell and many others said, this is Christian persecution. The, the federal government hates God and hates America. You know what we need to do? We need to organize politically and restore the, the order of uh, the American public square. So someone like Falwell goes from a, a preacher saying, don't get involved in politics, to somebody who is holding I Love America rallies in the 1970s, where he's having altar calls for America. Like you would go to a rally in 1976, and at the end of it, you would have an altar call not to uh, confess your your worship of Christ, but to confess your devotion to saving America from sinister forces. So he links up with the likes of Weirich and the others, and they basically have their mission to take the, the country back for God and for the white Christians they represent. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I 
found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. I wanted to also talk about you know, your comparisons of, of Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, I thought those were especially interesting. You know, it seems like if you were a white Christian nationalist, you couldn't have asked for a better candidate than Jimmy Carter. But as you write, you know, he was the quote, wrong type of Christian. What made him the wrong type of Christian? What went wrong there? And why did so many Protestants and Catholics vote for Reagan instead of Carter? Yeah, I think this is an uh, obviously an especially per- pertinent question in the in the wake of Rosalind Carter's death and uh, and Jimmy Carter entering hospice. Uh, we have this situation where uh, Jimmy Carter seems like he's made in a lab. If you're a white <laughs> conservative Christian, like if you were in a video game and you wanted to create a character for the white conservative Christian in the United States to vote for, <laughs> it's like Jimmy Carter's your man, right? I mean, Jimmy Carter is born to a, a Southern family who are farmers. They live in rural Georgia, not Atlanta, rural Georgia. They are Southern Baptists. They are uh, folks who prioritize reading the Bible. I mean, Jimmy Carter uh, had a conversion experience in his teen years. And he went on to be somebody who rarely left the house without his Bible. Who did Jimmy Carter marry? His high school sweetheart, Rosalind Carter. Well, what did they do uh, when they got of age? I don't know. He joined the military and became a military officer. So we have a lifelong Southern Baptist from the deep South, born into a rural farming family. He's a family man, never leaves the house without his Bible. And what more could you ask for? When his daddy dies, he goes home and takes over the family farm, eventually runs for school board, and then in a lightning in a bottle kind of career becomes president. Oh my gosh, this is the guy. Why would you vote for Ronald Reagan? 
Ronald Reagan was a divorced Hollywood actor. Like Hollywood is the den of sin if you're like a white conservative Christian in this country. He is not somebody who was really dyed in the wool as an evangelical. He had various stances on abortion when he was uh, governor of California. Not a great relationship with his older children. And if we go back to that whole family values idea, uh, Nancy Reagan, you know, there's a lot of reports that say that, you know, when she was in the White House, she had an astrologist follow her around and kind of help her uh, navigate life. Now, nothing against astrology on my part, but most white evangelicals see astrology as uh, the work of the devil, right? Okay. How does Ronald Reagan become your man? Well, Ronald Reagan articulated a vision for white Christian nationalist America. He said, I will put your values and your policies first. What were those values? Those values were a hawkish foreign policy. They were opposition to abortion. They were minimizing the federal government, taking people off what he called the welfare state, and so on and so forth. Jimmy Carter, while he was president, didn't do that. He appointed more women and people of color to the federal judiciary than anyone before him. He would not come out with a vehement stance against abortion, even though uh, personally he seemed to be against it. Uh, he was not somebody who was a hawk when it came to foreign policy. In fact, uh, he was really into diplomacy and negotiation, uh, successful or not. He also was just not a hardline anti-gay politician. He just would not engage in that kind of rhetoric in ways that Jerry Falwell's of the world wanted him to. My argument would be that Jimmy Carter was too much of a Christian and not enough of a Christian nationalist for the religious right and Jerry Falwell. And so in a way that completely foreshadows this group voting for Donald Trump in 2015-16, we have Jimmy Carter, this man who never leaves the house without his Bible, teach a Sunday school and uh, is a dyed-in-the-wool Southern Baptist who loses the vote of white Catholics and white evangelicals to a divorced Hollywood actor who uh, really only discovered religion late in life and was wishy-washy on abortion and uh, didn't have a great relationship with his kids. It totally, totally foreshadows what happened with the rise of Trump. Yeah. So I want to get into that. You know, we, based off of this, and I think we've covered the myth of the Christian nation, how does Donald Trump fit into here? You said that voting for Trump was once in a lifetime opportunity for many Christian nationalists. Why? Yeah, so I just want to emphasize the idea that, you know, if we if we take Christian nationalism, white Christian nationalism especially, as a desire to return the country to its proper order, that uh, for the white Christian nationalists, the country should look a certain way. It should feel a certain way. And since the 1960s, it has not, whether that's because of abortion, whether that's because of uh, queer rights, whether that's because of immigration, whether that's because of... We, uh, having a black president with a black family, however you want to talk about it, it seems to them that America is out of order and not working. So they have put their hope in various people. Ronald Reagan was one of them. And by the end of Ronald Reagan's uh, presidency, they were frustrated. He did not do everything they wanted. And uh, they were a little bit disillusioned. Then we get to the, the 90s and the presidency of, of Bill Clinton, which was, of course, something that they uh, did not approve of. George W. Bush, I think, is, is actually a really good case in point as to what sets up Trump. George W. Bush was an evangelical. George W. Bush was thoroughly conservative in policy. He was a hawk. We don't have to relive all of the, the details of Iraq and Af Afghanistan during his presidency to know that. 
But yet when he got done, it felt like the itch had not been scratched. Like there were still gay people in the country and they were just gaining more and more representation. And the country just kept getting more and more like black and brown and Asian and, you know, less and less Christian and less and less white. And it just felt like they were losing on every issue, whether it was abortion, whether it was gay marriage, whether it was uh, anything else, right? Like we just can't seem to get our enemies in line. And then all of a sudden, Barack Obama comes. He's a man named Barack. He's a man named Hussein, black family, dad from another country, dad from an African country, raised in in Kansas, but also raised in Hawaii. Like, is Hawaii even part of the union? I don't know. I think so. You know, do we have to change our money to go there? Uh, yeah, I can't remember. Right? Is he? Is that even America? Like, I mean, Missouri and Georgia. That's America. I mean, Iowa, yes. But Hawaii, I don't know. I don't trust people. I mean, he's president now. That's weird. Okay. If Jimmy Carter was built in a lab for the white conservative Christian, Barack Obama was built in a lab for them to be scared of, like to just think this is everything wrong with the country. So once Obama got into place, to me, something clicked. It was this. The next guy we we vote for is not going to be just a Christian. He's not going to be just a politician. Who, who makes promises like Reagan did. We need a bully. We need the guy that will brutalize the enemies, that will take out the people causing trouble, and that will put everything in order, policy and law and process and tradition be damned. We don't need that. What we need is someone to take care of business. We, I don't care if he's nice. I don't care how often he attends church. I don't care if he knows the difference between Two Corinthians and Second Corinthians. I don't care how many times he's been married. God can use him to save this nation. And the support was there in 2016. It only grew in 2020. And there's really no indication it's going to wane in 2024. Yeah. You talk about, about Trump as a, a strongman barbaric king. What do you mean by this? Is he going to fight the war for, for them with, without civility and etiquette? Principles be damned? Very much. Yeah. Like, so, you know, there, there was this piece in Fox news in 2019 by Miranda divine who says, uh, Hey, they keep saying Trump's a barbarian. Like that's a bad thing. We elected a barbarian. And I think that goes to the point I just tried to make, which is in Trump, there was not this guy who was going to be really good at bipartisan negotiation or, uh, you know, working to, uh, persuade people to come, uh, to this side of the aisle. They didn't want any of that. What they wanted was a barbarian king who would build a wall, who would bulldoze his enemies, who would just say to Muslims, you're not allowed in the country, who after a white nationalist uh, rally in Charlottesville would say, find people on both sides, who would do everything he could to uh, to stop peaceful protest, who would use uh, tear gas in order to clear a path so he could walk through and hold up a Bible uh, at St. John's Church. Uh, during the uprisings after George Floyd's murder, right? We don't want Ronald Reagan, the quintessential politician. We don't want George W. Bush, a guy who talks about how Jesus changed his heart. We want the barbarian because it's time for this to stop. We can't have any more of of America uh, in the image of Barack Obama or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Pete Buttigieg. It's just not going to work. So Get this man in here and do whatever you need, democracy, 
and policy be damned in order to get it done. And that's why I think they wanted a barbarian king. So I want to get I want to get into January the the January 6th attack, but before I do, you also discuss, you know, a partnership between the alt right and what you call the heirs of the new religious right under this umbrella of white Christian nas- nationalism. Uh, what is the difference between these two groups and what is this partnership? Yeah, I think unfortunately it's it's harder and harder to tell the groups apart. You know, I think if we look back over the last 10 or 15 years, we can see the development of what has been called the alt-right or the far-right or the white nationalist right uh, in, you know, leaders and figures like Richard Spencer. Uh, you know, we, we now see Patriot Front marching through American cities. Those are clearly white nationalist groups. Uh, they may have some Christian rhetoric attached to them, but they may not. Um, they're also, you know, if, if we think about figures now like Nick Fuentes and others, we can see the kind of links here between folks who are uh, just really trying to instill a white nationalist uh, vision for the United States. The people I study and I talk about more closely are those who would do so in the name of God. They would they would not necessarily lead with the white nationalism. They would lead with a Christian vision for the United States. Now, in my mind, the reason that they end up being partners is because that Christian vision for the United States lines up in many points, at many points, with the white nationalist vision for the United States. And so it's harder and harder to, I think, tell them apart. And I think there's uh, these days a, a closer and closer alliance between the two. I'll give you one example. I was uh, at a, a protest uh, about a year ago outside of a church that was hosting uh, somebody who the, the Southern Law Poverty Center considers uh, a hate speech advocate, somebody who, who, who talks about the queer community in ways that can be considered hate speech. So a couple dozen of us went and we, we protested that this person speaking at this church. And after church, uh, a lot of folks came out and they wanted to, to proselytize and convince us to, to you know, come to church and see it their way and all of that. Got offered a couple of stale donuts and uh, bad coffee you know, in the process. You know what? Totally fine. Hey, let's have a discussion. Let's talk. No, no problem. The thing that was uh, unsettling is that in order to, quote unquote, protect the church from the couple dozen protesters that were there, uh, the Proud Boys showed up. And the Proud Boys were like right outside the church, about 20 feet from where we were. And there was even people there wearing Nazi paraphernalia. So here we are standing outside this church, and there's there's Proud Boys and people wearing Nazi paraphernalia. And when folks came out of church, the, the response to them was not, hey, guys, Proud Boys, Nazis. Jesus loves you. He would love for you to come to church, but we don't need you to protect us. And we certainly don't stand for this. So we would love for you to visit our church, but we don't condone, you know, what you guys are doing. This is not who we are. Even if there's people protesting, you know, we don't want to be associated with this kind of stuff you're doing. What ended up happening was like people uh, walking out of church, waving to the Proud Boys because they all knew each other and saying, hey, Jeff, are you going to come over for lunch later? Hey, Mike, good to see you. Here's my point. This is an anecdote. But that kind of resonance in terms of their shared values and their vision for America is why I think the partnership works is because they have what they believe are common enemies and they have what they believe are people they need to uh, put back in place if they want the America uh, that they desire to 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 be uh, a reality, and so yeah, it's a partnership that works. And unfortunately, it's it's only one that's gotten more intimate as time has gone on. 
How how does this all connect back to the January 6th attack on the Capitol? What is the tipping point that makes this group say, yes, I'm going to go show up and engage in violence. I'm going to, I'm going to come take my country back because my representatives aren't doing what I want. What, what led to this or what is the, what is the tipping point in this situation? You know, I think that one thing to keep in mind when we uh, think about January 6th and white Christian nationalism is that even before the, the election had been decided, Donald Trump was already telling people that it had been stolen. And everything I write about in the book and everything I wanted to talk about today says that white Christian nationalists had believed their country had been stolen from them for 50, 60 years. Like if you go back to Goldwater 1964, it was basically like, we need to get our country back and extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. If you need to be an extremist to do it, that's great. That may be the only way you can hold on to America. So if you take a group of people who for 50 or 60 years has been told a message that your country has been stolen from you by people who don't deserve it, people who are not real Americans, people who hate America, and then Donald Trump shows up and says, you know what they did in this election? They stole it. The two go together because he might be saying they stole this election. But there's so many people in his audience who are hearing they stole your country, and this might be the final blow. If they will steal an election, it's over. You will never have power again. You'll never have a a leg to stand on. And the quote-unquote woke communist mobs, socialist Marxists are going to take over, and they're going to destroy your family, your way of life, your church, and everything else. So why is the big lie a tipping point? It's a tipping point because they had been believing that this had been stolen from them for half a century. And so when Trump is willing to say, they stole this election, are you going to stand for that? When so many megachurch pastors and charismatic leaders and apostles were telling their people, they stole the election, they stole the country, what are you going to do about that? People were willing to say, yeah, if we don't stand up now, when will we? If we don't take a, 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 a moment to like rally, then we never will. So yes, they want us to come to the Capitol January 5th for a rally. I'll do it. January 6th, we're going to show up and, and go to the, the ellipse where Trump is going to speak. Sure. And to me, it's just, it's a very short jump to get that crowd to think the next, the next thing you should do is stop the certification of this election because it may be the last chance you have to stop the stealing of your country. Are you up for it or not? And I'll just be honest with you, Catherine. I was in this movement. If you would have met 16-year-old me or 17-year-old me, I understand how the, the rhetoric gets primed in these churches and in these spaces. And if there had been a man in my church who was like, hey, we're going to DC. We can't let these folks steal our country. We can't let them insult God and nation. Are you going to be with us? There's part of me that would have been like, let's do it. I'm ready. Let's go. Because in my mind, this the stakes were cosmic. The stakes were not simply about one election. They were about the entire direction of the universe and of the United States. And if that's the myth you're living by, it's not that hard to mobilize people to the kinds of uh, things we saw on January 6th. Is, is democracy just unfortunate collateral damage in this war? Well, I... I 
So I think the short answer is yes. And I think, you know, why, why would I say that? If I go back to my example of the table, we have, you know, folks from all the different constituencies of the United States sitting around a table. If you show up as the white Christian and you say, hey, I should be privileged here, that is from the jump thoroughly undemocratic because you're, you're not saying, hey, everyone gets a voice. Everyone gets equal say in how this country looks and it functions and how it's assembled. You're saying, I, I get a disproportionate say. That very gesture is anti-democratic, right? Because you're tilting the scale. You're saying, I should get an outsized say voice, influence in how the country works. So if we take that example as our start, what we come to then 50 and 60 years later of a movement that believes the country has been stolen from them, we realize that for them, the goal is not a return to democracy. And in fact, the goal was never democracy. The goal was always privilege and power. Why would you vote for Ronald Reagan over the Bible-carrying Sunday school teacher Jimmy Carter, power. Why would you elevate a Hollywood actor, a a divorced philanderer, a foul-mouthed career criminal like Trump? Power. You want to have authority and dominion over the country. My argument is this. Your goal is not to return to democracy. Your goal is to return to power. So democracy is not the sacred value. Democracy is not the thing you're you're trying to attain, it's actually something that might get in your way. Because since the 1960s, all of these immigrants and black people and women and brown people and Asian people, all of these folks have been clamoring to vote. They've been clamoring for representation. They've been clamoring for equality. Democracy to those who've been privileged for so long feels like persecution. And that's what that's what's happening with the white Christian nationalists in this moment. So uh, for a long time, and I, I go out, I, I, I go about uh, this at length in the book, white Christian nationalists have looked to autocratic leaders as the examples of what they want in the United States for a long time. For a long time, they have looked to Putin, to Viktor Orban, as people that they say, I wish we had that guy. I wish we had that form of government. Because if we had that form of government, then we wouldn't have all these courts and all these processes and legislatures, and we wouldn't have the deep state getting in the way. We could just have one barbarian king that would give us the Christian nation we want and deserve. That's better, isn't it? Than all this red tape and deep state and bureaucracy, and it just gets in the way. Democracy is a problem, not an answer for a lot of these people. Hmm. What sorts of religious symbols did you see at the January 6th attack? Tell me about those. Oh man, this is like, so January 6th was like that morning that it all happened. Um, it was one of those moments where A, you're just in shock, but B, uh, you have, you like, as a religious studies professor, you just go into like total, like all of your training kicks in. It's like that moment <laughs> that all your, you know, like <laughs> people are like, uh, there's, it cannot be a very exciting life being a religious studies professor, but January 6th was one of those moments. You're like, I have been training for this my entire life. Here we go. And so all of us, not all of us, but a lot of us were on Twitter and a lot of us were online in real time, like gathering um, images and video. And what you see there when you look at what's been collected are so many religious symbols. Uh, there are so many American flags and Trump flags, but there's so many flags that say, you know, Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. 
there are so many uh, Christian flags. There are people walking around carrying statues of Christ. There are people walking around carrying icons of Mary. There are people who, and, and just beyond symbols, there are people who are practicing rituals. So there are so many people who led uh, impromptu worship uh, sessions. So they had a guitar and they started singing praise songs and others gathered with them and they thanked God for the opportunity to uh, step in to save the country. There were so many people who led prayers. You know, one of the arguments I make is that if you pay attention, every time that the rioters sort of got to a different area of the capital, every time they breached a different barrier, somebody would stop and pray. And for me, what that signified is they were stopping to tell the story of what they were doing there. They were repeating the myth of, of who they were in this, in this narrative. And the prayers were usually, thank you, God, for bringing us patriots and us godly warriors here at this point. So in those prayers, I think they're telling a story. I think they're saying, uh, we're not treasonous. We are not criminals. You know, For all of us watching at home, it was like, I can't believe people would overtake the Capitol. Well, for the people praying and, and thinking of themselves as playing a role in a story, they're heroes and patriots and godly warriors because they are doing something radical for God. And so those prayers are ways to resubstantiate the community you're in that is doing something that to the outside world might seem uh, not a good idea and actually treasonous or, or criminal. One of the other symbols that I'd love to just mention here is the appeal to heaven flag. Uh, the appeal to heaven flag is like a pine tree. It's a very simple flag. It's a, it's a pine tree um, on a white background. And that flag was inspired by John Locke and actually used in the Revolutionary War George Washington and others adopted it, and it's been part of American history since then. And so you might say, well, okay, what, how is that significant in this context? Since 2013, the Appeal to Heaven flag has been used by white Christian nationalists as a way to say that our rights and our authority for this country do not come from men. They do not come from humans. They do not come from the Constitution. They come from God. So our appeal for the country is to is to heaven, not to uh, the founders in terms of the constitution or even the people who are in charge now. The appeal to heaven flag is one that has been used to mobilize spiritual warfare on the part of Christians who want their country to return to God in the ways we've talked about today. If you look closely at January 6th, uh, there's appeal to heaven flags everywhere. And those those uh, are are ones you might miss if you're not looking for them. I bring them up now because uh, I wrote about this recently. Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House, uh, has a an appeal to heaven flag outside of his office. Uh, he he's flying it there, and he is directly linked to many of the Christian nationalists uh, who called for people to mobilize around January sixth. So the the religious symbols to me are many at January sixth. But they're still flying, and they're still infecting and, and uh, infiltrating our government two, three years later. And the best example might be uh, what you would see if you walked outside of Mike Johnson's office right now. I saw your I saw your Twitter thread about that. So one of the most one of the most powerful quotes I think from the book, because you were looking back on January sixth and its aftermath, and you know what what you think is to come, and you wrote. The question is not if there will be another attack on the country. The question is when. In the post 
January 6th era, do you think we're descending into an era of even more normalized political violence in this country? Yeah, I, I think we are. And I think we have. Uh, I think when we imagine these kinds of scenarios, it's easy to imagine a new civil war. Hey, is there going to be North versus South again? And uh, I understand that question. Um, I, I think, though, that if we ask it that way, we miss uh, what are the little fires everywhere all around us that have been burning since January 6th. You know, if we think about Patriot Front marching through American cities, uh, if we think about men with AR-15s uh, sitting outside voter drop boxes, if we think about people with AR-15s showing up at a uh, gay brunch to disrupt it, or uh, if we think about the kinds of tactics and rhetoric used by those who would uh, like to ban books or uh, make it such that one cannot uh, even mention queer identity in schools. If we think about the ways that violence has become a normal part of uh, American politics and American citizenry, uh, you know, we can think about rising anti-Semitism in recent weeks. We can think about students who were killed in Vermont, Palestinian students who were killed in Vermont uh, just recently. All of those are little fires everywhere. And I think we now live in a situation where if you are somebody who works uh, at the IRS, you might be on the lookout for people who are coming to get you because of something Trump said, right? If you are somebody who works as at a voting place, if you are somebody who is an election worker, you might fear for your life on election days. Um, if you are somebody who is attending a pride event, you might fear that Patriot Front or another group might show up and uh, wage large-scale violence on that event. We now live in a, in a situation where we expect there to be disruption, where we expect there to be strife. And that is, to me, the, the pot of boiling water with the frog inside that we have to pay attention to rather than just saying, well, yeah, you know, wake me up when uh, California and Washington and Oregon form an alliance with Massachusetts and New York and they go to war with, with Louisiana, Texas and Oklahoma with the Dakotas and, and, uh, and Idaho joining in. Like when that happens, wake me up and I'll start paying attention, right? I guess for me, it's like, I want to zoom in to all those localities, all those places where democracy is being overrun, all those state legislatures, all those mayoral races, all those places like Franklin, Tennessee, where a woman who, who showed up with Nazis accompanying her got 20% of the vote. And you're saying, well, that's 20%. And I'm saying, yeah, that's 20%. One out of five people in the, in the city voted for somebody who showed up with Nazis the other night. Down the road in Murfreesboro, they outlawed homosexuality. These are not far corners of the country. These are places like 40 minutes from Nashville, right? So when I see those things happening, when I see bills that say, if you're a woman on the highway, we might pull you over and check that you might be getting an abortion. What I see are just little fires everywhere that say American democracy is bending. It's bending. It's bending. The peaceful ability to exist in our public square is bending, bending, bending. And we're being primed for more violence. So I'll just say Trump has already forecasted what he wants for a second term. He's already talked about large scale camps for migrants. He's already talked about expanding the executive branch using Project 2025. He's already talked about using the Insurrection Act to uh, quell what he would call disorder, to call on the military forces to do his bidding. These are ways that he's already told us what would happen if he was president again. 
And none of that has stopped momentum for his campaign. So for me, it is these kinds of things that I'm watching rather than saying, you know, hey, wake me up when civil war erupts and I'll turn the football game off and I'll start paying attention. (laughs) Absolutely. Last question for me. What is your biggest takeaway from your time spent writing this book? I think the biggest takeaway is... (laughs) A lot of folks were alarmed by the title and not like, you know, they, they, there were a lot of questions like, hey, this seems kind of like a lot, you know, this is an aggressive title. And I guess for me, it was it was a chance to say, it's not that I'm preparing for war or that I really want to. It's that there's been a group of Americans preparing and waging war for half a century, and it led to January 6th. And if we let January 6th go by the wayside, if we forget it, if we uh, lack the gall to adjudicate it, if we're not willing to prosecute those who are involved, then there's nothing we should do but expect more because uh, that is what happens throughout history. If you do not adjudicate and and evaporate these kinds of movements from, from your space, then they will just return and they will grow stronger and stronger. And, you know, in the, in, in the, the time since the book's been out till now, nothing has dissuaded me from from anticipating that uh, for the United States. Well, Brad, thank you so much for coming on to talk to me. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been great to be here. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thank you so much for listening.